the text for this morning's service is from Hebrews 10 to verses 26 through 31. Let's read that once again. If we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the, mer- on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said it is mine to avenge. I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. After the sermon, we will sing from hymn 43, the stanzas 1 through 6. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, have you ever encountered people who are afraid that they will not go to heaven? They just think that they're not good enough. They hope that their faith is strong enough and that God's promises somehow also apply to them, but they are not sure. My own grandfather was like that. He belonged to a Reformed church that was quite subjective. That is to say, to a church where they put a very strong emphasis on a special personal relationship with God, you had to have had a very clear message from God to tell you that you have been chosen as his special child. If you had not received such direct assurance of your salvation, then you cannot be sure that you will go to heaven. Thankfully, that's not what we believe, for that's not biblical. And thankfully, my grandfather, towards the end of his life, also embraced the promises of God and became sure of his salvation towards the end of his life. For the fact of the matter is that the promises of God are sure. Scripture clearly promises the forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all those who believe in him. We also just read that prior to the text. We don't need a special message from God in order to tell us that we belong to him. And yet there are also people amongst us who have their doubts about their salvation. They look at their lives and see what they have done, and they see what they're doing, the kind of person that they are, and they mourn their sins. How can God save a sinner like me? More often, however, we have people who go to the other extreme, those who are confident of their salvation and who are somewhat smug about it. They see God as a forgiving God, and so they don't worry about their sins too much. They don't worry too much about leading a God-fearing life. They take their salvation for granted. 
Well, the Lord God has something to say to all of us about these different attitudes. He warns us, but at the same time, he also comforts us. He wants us to have the right perspective about our relationship with him. He does not want us to doubt, but he does not want us to deliberately keep on sinning either. And that's what I will preach to you about this morning. The theme is as follows. God warns those who keep on sinning deliberately of his great wrath to come. And then we will see three things. First of all, we will look at the subjects of this warning. Secondly, the content of this warning. And then finally, the comfort of this warning. To whom was this warning given? Is this text really meant for all of us? Well, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, yes, it does. The Holy Spirit deems it necessary for us to have this text. He included it in the, in the scriptures, didn't he? And so we are all included in the warning. That's also clear from the way that this text begins. But the author of this letter also includes himself. He says, if we deliberately keep on sinning, no one is, in, ex is excluded, not even the author of this letter. And so you and I are included as well. Why does he come with that warning to all of us? Well, let's look at to whom this message was sent in the first place and their particular circumstances. And that will show us how essentially we are not different from them. This letter was written to Jewish Christians some 20 years after the death of Christ. Some of these Jews were quite new to the Christian faith. And now they were going back to their former beliefs. They were backsliding. At first, these people enthusiastically embraced the gospel with open arms. To their delight, they clearly saw all the Old Testament laws and regulations pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great discovery that was for them. But as soon as they put their newfound faith into practice, things began to change. Their former friends and colleagues no longer reacted to them in a favorable way. The practice of their faith was threatening to them. We read, for example, in Hebrews 10, verse 33 and 34, that they were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, and that even some of them were thrown into prison and had their property confiscated. And we can infer from Hebrews 13, verse 12 and 13, that they were expelled from Jewish institutions. That is the way it is often, especially for new Christians. As soon as you put your faith into practice and stand up for your faith, then you are rejected. You will have difficulty with your relatives and with your former friends, Oh, sure, people have little or no difficulty with people having different opinions from them. You can have your opinion and I can have mine, but we can still be good friends. And about a lot of minor things, that's the way it ought to be. We should leave each other some freedom and not blow minor differences out of proportion. After all, we're all sinful human beings and prone to mistakes. But when it comes to our faith, we are dealing with something on a completely different level. 
For now, we are speaking about eternal life. We are speaking about life and death. We are speaking about something that is sure, about which there is no doubt, and which affects every aspect of our existence. It has to do with faith, with the knowledge of the truth, as the author says in verse 26. When he uses that word knowledge there, then he uses a Greek word that means not just factual knowledge, but inner knowledge. It means acknowledgement. It is a faith that has been experienced and that is to be put into practice because you are convinced of the truth. It is faith in action. That's where the difficulty came in. As soon as these people put their faith into practice, other people took offense. They felt threatened because of their faith. People had no problem that they believed something different, but they wanted them to keep that to themselves. They could not talk about it as if they had the only truth. Nor could these people live in accordance with that faith. That is too threatening to an unbeliever or to others who have a different faith. And so what happened? They were persecuted. They were mistreated. Their lives and their material possessions were not safe anymore. And at first, these new Jewish Christians took it in stride. For it says that they joyfully accepted their sufferings. But with some of them, that joyful suffering for their faith did not last all that long. They started wavering. They succumbed to the pressure. It was easier to go along with their Jewish relatives and friends once again. It was easier to fall back into Judaism. It was easier to start compromising their faith. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, the devil is very clever at seducing us. He knows how attached we are to our earthly treasures, to our earthly comforts, to our jobs, our homes, our families. We don't want to give them up. We have a hard time entrusting our lives totally to the Lord. And that's exactly what happened to some of the people that this letter to the Hebrews was written to. They gave up. They no longer fought the good fight of the faith. That's been a problem throughout the ages. It's a problem today as well. Think about the early Christian church during the first three centuries after Christ. During that time, there was also severe persecution. Some people lost their jobs, their homes, even their families. And not everybody was willing to pay the price. They went back to their former lives and renounced their faith. The same thing happened during the time of the Reformation. There were lots of converts. A lot of people turned their backs on the false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. But not everybody remained resolute in maintaining the true faith of the Scriptures. When the persecution became too severe, when the price became too high, they abandoned their convictions and went back to where they came. After all, they argued, we can also serve the Lord there. It is for that reason that Guido de Bray wrote in the Belgian Confession in Article 28 that outside of the church there is no salvation. In other words, you cannot have it both ways. You cannot be a closet Christian. 
If you are a Christian, then you must live it. You have to stand up for what you believe. You have to put your faith into practice. All of us have to do that. For Satan never tries or never gives up trying to seduce you. You can be very subtle about that. He knows that with the people of the church, a frontal attack alone rarely works. And so along with the persecution, he whittles away at it. He tries to undermine our faith little by little. Most of us in this building have been brought up in the Reformed Church. And so we do not have the pressure of family and friends standing in the way of our faith life. But we have a different danger. We are in danger of taking our salvation for granted. We're also in danger of taking the communion of saints for granted, the gathering together. To Guido the bread belonging to a faith community was very important. To him it was important that you have meaningful fellowship with your brothers and sisters in the Lord who hold the same truth. And that is also the context within which this text is framed. For in verse 24 of chapter 10 of Hebrews, the author urges the readers to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. In other words, toward an act of faith. How do you spur one another on? By regularly meeting together, he says in verse 25. It is in this way that you can encourage one another in the faith. Else it becomes so easy to fall back into the same sins, for you don't have your brothers and sisters to warn you. Brothers and sisters who love you. They don't keep track of one another than any longer. If you don't regularly come to church, you need each other to remain faithful. You need the office bearers in the church. And that is why he gives you the warning about deliberately keeping on sinning. What sin exactly is he referring to? Well, we'll deal with that in the second point. We read here about a deliberate sin. Please don't think that he is speaking here about some horrendous sin in a person's life for which there is no forgiveness. For the truth of the matter is that there is not a sin for which there is no forgiveness. There is forgiveness for all sins. Let me say that once again. There is forgiveness for all sins. And you may say, well, what about the sin against the Holy Spirit then? Doesn't the Bible teach that there is no forgiveness for that particular sin? And you are right. But that's what not, a, not what I'm speaking about at the moment. For what is that sin against the Holy Spirit? It is this, that you completely turn your back on the Lord, that you want nothing to do with Him anymore, that you resist all attempts to bring you back. If that is what you do, and if that is what you persist in doing, then you sin against the Holy Spirit. But if you are worried about your sins, if you want the forgiveness of sins and ask for it, if you are sorry for your sins, then there is not a sin that the Lord God will not forgive. For Christ himself interacted with all kinds of sinful people with prostitutes, with murderers, with crooked tax collectors, all kinds of them. And did he reject them? No, of course not. 
On the contrary, he forgave them their sins. He welcomed them with open arms. Their sins did not prevent them from being included in the covenant. What then is the concern? Well, the concern is the trampling underfoot, or as the RSV and other translations have it, the spurning of the Son of God. It is about treating the blood of the covenant as an unholy thing. It is about insulting the Spirit of grace, the Holy Spirit. You see, he is speaking here about those who have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. They regularly came to church, and then they started sloughing off. They knew exactly what Christ stood for. They were told all about it, and they believed it. But then, when the going got rough, when the world seemed more attractive to them, and when adversity came into their lives, when the persecution started and people were thrown into prison, then they started to make compromises. Slowly but surely, they allowed themselves to be drawn away from God's word, from God. In other words, the world drew them away. And in this way, they were trampling the Son of God underfoot. They treated him with contempt. Same word used for trampling in our text is used twice by the Lord Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount. There he speaks about the salt which no longer is any good anymore after it's lost its taste. He says that then it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. And he says the same thing about the pearls thrown before the swine. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Matthew 7 verse 6. Someone who tramples something under his foot treats it with contempt. He does that either because it has no value, such as the salt, or because he has no use for it, or because he does it out of ignorance, or he does it out of willful disobedience. He treats it like a pesky insect. Then you may say, well, I don't do that. I don't trample the Son of God underfoot. Don't be too hasty. For the author also says something about the blood of the covenant, about treating the blood of the covenant as an unholy thing. In the original, the author warns literally against counting the blood of the covenant a common thing. In other words, to treat the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ like we treat everything else that is of fleeting value. Now we're getting a little closer to the seriousness of the warning. We live in a throwaway society. A lot of us treat our possessions with a certain amount of contempt. If something is no longer useful to us, then we throw it away or we put it aside. That is what he is warning us against. And that is not something we must do with the blood of the covenant, for we are speaking here about the tremendous sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Do you know what a wonderful gift that is, that sacrifice to us? We are speaking here about the great price that he paid for your sins, for my sins. And furthermore, we are speaking here about the covenant. These words are spoken to those who are part of the covenant. 
Remember what he said in the first part of the text? He used the word we. This warning is meant for all of us. It's meant for me. It's meant for you. We all have to be very careful. We have to sign and the seal of the covenant on our foreheads. Someone who treats the blood of the covenant as a common thing also does something else as he, he insults the spirit of grace. For the Holy Spirit comes by way of the blood of the covenant. The Holy Spirit came only because Christ prepared the way. He made it possible. If we take the blood of the covenant too lightly, then we close off our hearts to the Holy Spirit. Then we close off our hearts to the way of God and to our hearts. And now let me put it to you again, brothers and sisters, boys and girls. Do you do that? Don't be too hasty in answering. Think about it. How do you trample the Son of God underfoot? As I said, we all do it to a certain extent. You do that when you lead a Christian, an unchristian lifestyle. You do that when you are no longer bothered by your sins. You do that when you keep on fooling yourself by thinking that you do not need the daily renewal. You don't even think about it. You do that when you do not want to change your lifestyle right at this moment. You're putting it off until tomorrow. And you keep on putting it off. And you do it especially when you do not come to church regularly. Or by not participating in the worship services, by falling asleep, or by not listening. He warns us, don't make a habit of these things. For, says the Lord God, there may come a time when it is too late. There may come a time when you don't care at all anymore. And then the sin against the Holy Spirit begins to play a role. And once you have done that, then it is too late. Hold on now, you may say. Don't we believe in the perseverance of the saints? Do we not believe that nothing can separate us from the love of God? Does God not keep on holding on to us? Yes, he does. You're right. He does not let us go. But please keep in mind that the doctrine about the perseverance of the same was given for us for the comfort. For the comfort of those who are weighed down by their sins. It is for those who are afraid to fall away or for those who are not sure about their salvation. It is comfort for sincere believers. But let's not forget that the Bible is full of warnings and these warnings are meant for everybody. The Lord God does not give us the knowledge of our salvation so that now we may sit back and become complacent taking it all for granted. That's what some of these Jewish Christians were doing. Verse 24 says that some of them were in the habit of not meeting together. Their church attendance became sporadic. They went only when they felt like it. They went back to their Jewish synagogues with their former relatives and friends. Some of us have that same problem. We have some young people who do not regularly come to church anymore. Some of them do not come at all anymore. Some of them have stayed away for a year, for even 
more years. And this has the attention of their families and their friends, and it certainly has the attention of the consistory. How do we bring those young people back? How are we effective instruments in God's hand? Well, by warning them in a loving way that they are missing out on their salvation. It's not a matter of, first of all, coming to church. No, coming to church is the result of realizing the great benefits of your faith. It is the result of realizing that you need to be saved from your sins. It is the result of realizing how wonderful it is to know that all is well between you and God. But if you want to bring them back, you have to model that realization. They have to see from your words and actions how joyful you are that you are a child of God, that you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ and his people. And you also do that by showing how faithful you are in your church attendance, in your marriage, in the way that you keep your promises. And if you can lovingly point out in word and deed to your loved ones, then the result will be that they will come back to church with you, the Lord willing. And so, what is the content of this warning for all of us? It's this. Be faithful. Don't start slip-sliding away. His warning is not against some horrible sin in the past, as I said, but it is against the road to apostasy. He is warning us about the long road to perdition. He is warning us against taking those first steps to ruination. You may all be very innocent at first, not attending church as regularly as you should, not wanting to change your lifestyle. Step by step, you're going astray. Slowly but surely, you become a stranger to the way of the covenant. That's what we have to warn against, brothers and sisters, boys and girls. The author pictures for us the end of that road. All those little steps lead us to the final indictment, the trampling underfoot of the Son of God. Isn't that terrible? And so we hear a serious warning. Don't take that first step. For that may be the most dangerous one of all. Once we start taking things too lightly, once we take that first step, then the next step will be easier. Until in the end your eyes are blinded, our consciences have been stilled, and the Holy Spirit has been shut out. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It says in our text, And the author compares God's punishment in the Old Testament to the New Testament. He says in verse 28, Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. The punishment for certain sins in the Old Testament was death. Idolatry, for example. If someone was caught worshipping idols, he would be put to death. And you say, well, that was very harsh, wasn't it? But let's not forget that in this case, physical death, not eternal death, was the punishment. 
Even though the person were to die, repentance was still possible before he died. In the Old Testament, the church executed both the civil law and the spiritual law. But in the New Testament, it is a different thing. Now the church can only apply punishment in a spiritual way. The sword has now been given to the civil government. But in the final analysis, spiritual discipline is a lot worse than corporal punishment. For now we are dealing with eternal life. Now we live in the age of the Holy Spirit. And so a very serious warning is being sounded here. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so you may now think to yourself, well, this all sounds very gloomy. Where's the joy this morning? Where's the comfort? Is that what we come to church for? To have some gloomy message? Well, brothers and sisters, boys and girls, there is also a lot of comfort in this text. As a matter of fact, this text is full of comfort. We have here a message of good news. The fact that the Lord God warns you and me shows that he loves us. For as the author says elsewhere, only a father who loves his children disciplines them. He does not want his children to fall away, to go astray. And he also reminds us in this text, as I have mentioned earlier, that there is not a sin so great that the Lord God will not forgive. If you are worrying about the fact that you have sinned against the Holy Spirit, that you have done the unpardonable thing, then rest assured, the Lord forgives you. doesn't matter what it was. As a matter of fact, he is eager to forgive. The text speaks about the fear of falling to the hands of the living God. Well, there's first of all the mercy of God. I would much rather fall into his hands than into the hands of men. We are not such a forgiving bunch. We do not forgive so easily. We're not that eager to forgive. But Lord God is a merciful God. He has kind eyes. And you may look into his eyes with a confident heart. His warning, however, is to those who do not worry about their salvation. It is to those who are coming to the end of the road. It is to those who have hardened their hearts. They have been brought up in their faith, having been told the good news of salvation all their lives. At home, at school, and in church. And then they turn their back on it. It leaves them cold. They don't worry about the fact that they are offending God. They throw away that gift of faith. But if you believe, you don't have to worry. We may be confident that the Lord God will not disappoint you or me. He will not deal with us according to our sins. And brothers and sisters, that is the sure hope that we have. And the next chapter speaks about that true faith which we must have. It says, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And so, instead of being afraid, we may rejoice. 
And that's why we could also sing earlier, My soul, why are you sad and grieving? Why so oppressed with anxious care? Hope yet in God, his faith, his word believing. For light and joy from him receiving. I'll praise his name again and laud my Savior and my Lord. And so we can go on in the strength of the Lord, taking his warning seriously. Being afraid to take that first step on the way to apostasy. But at the same time, we can throw ourselves at the mercy seat of God. For he is a loving God for all those who seek him. Amen.